You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm talking with Christoph Herrmann, a.k.a. Stuffel, a Haskell and Elm programmer at No Right Inc. who's spent a lot of time teaching Haskell to beginners. We talk about some of his experience teaching Haskell, as well as the history of Haskell, some comparison to other languages, and of course, a bit about Monad tutorials. Software Unscripted is sponsored by my and Stoffel's employer, No Red Inc. No Red Inc. makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring, so the next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at noredinc.com jobs. And now, teaching Haskell. All right, I'm here with Stoffel. Nice to see you again. Good to have you on the program. Thank you. So we were talking about learning Haskell. And among programming languages, Haskell has, I think, somewhat of an unusual reputation because it's a language that is famously challenging to learn. It's it's not considered an easy language to learn among all the programming languages out there. But it's also one where once people have learned it or, or have gotten a certain amount into it, Again, more than really any other language I can think of, people report this sort of like mind-blowing experience, this like epiphany and like they see programming differently and stuff like that. What do you think about that? Was that was that your experience when you first learned Haskell? Is it like a, a mind-blowing thing for you? Well, like the first time I dabbled around with Haskell was, I guess, during university time. And that, back then, it def- definitely never had an epiphany. It was just like, oh, I, I don't understand what's going on here. <laughs> and like, I didn't also use it in a, in a actual pro- project or, or something. And I think that moment came to me when I actually learned Elm for the first time because that was my first real functional language I learned. And like, after learning Elm, I definitely saw programming differently. And I wonder if that has carried over to later learning Haskell for real. And like, I definitely think that gave me kind of a head start in learning Haskell. Um, and something I definitely recommend anyone that is interested in, in, in Haskell and doesn't have any functional background, like learn Elm before, and you will learn a lot of like intuition of like how to build stuff and how to like write maintainable code, like even though that Elm is pretty solid and it's like hard to make like mistakes, like bigger mistakes, it, it still doesn't prevent you from writing like really huge applications that you have like a hard time maintaining afterwards because it's so <laughs> sure. like tangled up. And so, yeah, you still need to be careful. Yeah. I think that's really good advice. Like, so I think part of like, if you were to break down, I'm curious what you think, but from my perspective, I think the reason that Haskell is considered so challenging is partly that uh, it's it's unfamiliarity. Like most people who learn Haskell, who don't have experience with another functional programming language, or especially another pure functional programming language, one of the first things they're confronted with is like, I can't do mutation anymore. I don't have for loops anymore. I don't have while loops. There's no, like none of that's a thing anymore. So there's a bunch of tools that you're used to having that are just gone. But at the same time, you're also confronted with a bunch of new concepts. Like you have laziness everywhere. And that has some implications for like certain function calls that you don't think would work actually work or they work differently. And on top of that, you also have like higher kind of types, which have a whole bunch of unfamiliar terminology like monads and monoids and functors. And you can't just sort of like opt into those like a third party library. They're in the standard library. So you have to learn about them to, to some extent to be able to use basic things. So I think it's the combination of all of those things. Like maybe if you just had one of those three at once, it wouldn't be such a stretch. And I think that gets to your point about like recommending learning like Elm first is that Elm only has one of those three. Like it doesn't have laziness. It doesn't have the category theory terminology. It just has the pure functions. And so that is kind of just like one thing to learn coming from uh, uh, an imperative language. Yeah, certainly. Like almost always you're confronted with like too many concepts really early on. Like instead of having learned the basics and actually doing something with just the basics, um, is never something you do. You always like almost immediately go to like monads and learning how to write your own tab type classes and so on. Something like, you can totally avoid and you can like still write a program that does something interesting. And yeah, that has, has been my experience 
actually learning Haskell is like, let's just get something done. Even if I don't understand some parts, it doesn't matter. Um, like accepting unknowns or like that something does something that I don't fully grasp and is helps you in like learning process, I think. You know, another thing that I think makes it more difficult to learn Haskell as a beginner is the fact that something that Haskell and JavaScript have in common is that it's pretty unusual for people to use the stock standard library and that's it. Yeah. In fact, like that's like almost the the only thing that people agree about how to do production Haskell is do not use the the normal prelude, like the normal standard library. You you have to use a different one off the shelf. Now, which one you should use, that's a matter of debate, but everybody agrees you shouldn't use the standard one cuz the standard one has like a string is a linked list of characters. That's just, you cannot write a <laughs> remotely performant application if that's what your string representation is. Yeah, certainly. Like every company has their own flavor of Haskell, I guess. Um, and I think like the most valuable thing, like obviously if you just learn Haskell from a book, you won't encounter that in, in real life at a company. Like it, it won't be the exact same thing uh, only if you join the company that like wrote the book or something, I guess. Right. Um, so I think like the most important skill to to acquire from learning Haskell is to like learn how to learn quickly a new style and like adapt and like um, also like the other way around is like making your style or flavor as simple as possible so that it's like very um, accessible i guess is, is something important to keep in mind as well now that's that's helpful for beginners and that's also helpful for people who like the like elm style of simplicity or i guess the rock style because i'm also a fan of that <laughs> but but not everybody prefers that that strategy um and i don't want to like accuse people of you know preferring complexity or whatever but i definitely have heard some people who say like i prefer Haskell's sort of like default style to Elm's default style because uh, I mean, sometimes people will say things uncharitable, like, Oh, like, you know, <laughs> they won't say it like this, but the, the vibe that I get is sort of like Elm's for babies. It's, it's not a real, you know, you're going to need X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, really, we got about a half a million lines of Elm code in production. It's like built a successful company around it. I, I feel like maybe we don't, maybe we don't need that stuff, but let's be charitable and say that some people actually prefer you know, the, the sure, more yeah. complex features. And I don't agree with that, but um, certainly I think we can agree that, you know, uh, even if somebody does prefer to like embrace the full complexity and like use all of the different features that Haskell has and not say, you know, let's, let's just trim it down to the, the simplest subset that has the properties that we want, which is how we use it. But like, they're just saying, okay, I want all of this. I want I want to enable all the language features. I want, you know, almost the polar opposite of what we do. That's a reasonable way to use a programming language. Um, but I think we can objectively say that that's harder for beginners. It's it's it, that that is a downside of of like enabling the full, you know, laundry list of potential features. Yeah. And and like also considering that new people even if they are experienced programmers already, um they still have to learn like the whole domain of the company and then like probably face more concepts that they have used before. Um, right. Uh, so I definitely think that adds to like your mental load. Like as uh, the more concepts you need to chuckle in your head, um, trying to understand what a program does, I think, yeah, makes it harder and makes it easier to introduce issues, I think. Yeah, it's surprising if you take away the the sort of the things that make the languages like their most like fundamental selves uh, of Haskell and JavaScript. There's actually quite a lot of similarities in terms of like ecosystem characteristics from the perspective of like somebody new joining a company, especially JavaScript, like, I don't know, five plus years ago, it seems like now it's more standardized or it's like, mm -hmm. I don't want to say everybody, but like it's it's very common to have exactly the stack of like TypeScript and React, and I guess I I don't, I don't want to go further than that, but like I remember back in the day, like when I was I don't know more plugged into the, the JavaScript ecosystem, it seemed like 
there was like, okay, do you use React or do you use Angular? Do you use Ember? Do you use like, I mean, even going further back, Knockout JS, Backbone, there was just like all these different ways to organize your app. And then even beyond that, there was like, what are you doing for state management? Are you using Redux? Are you using MobX? Are you using, I forget what the stores are called now, but anyway, there was like all that. And then there was uh, like on top of that, it was like, oh, are you using functional style? And I think this still happens today, but it's like, are you using Ramda JS? Are you using Immutable JS? I don't think Immutable JS is used as much anymore. But, you know, there was just all of these different decisions, which meant that if you started a job at a new company, even though you might have been a JavaScript programmer at your previous job, you just got a whole bunch of new libraries to learn that are not just like specific to the problems being solved. It's just like, no, this is just like the flavor of JavaScript you're using. And I think the same thing happens to some extent in Haskell. Like you have different test runners, you have different standard libraries, certainly. Um, And then even with like something as basic as like, how do you run effects? There's a bunch of different effects systems that that all have different trade-offs. I think one fundamental difference though is like, obviously you also have like a whole like a huge ecosystem to pick your libraries from. But I think a big difference between JavaScript and Haskell is that in JavaScript, at least my experience was that like you picked your N libraries um, at the start of the project, and then you're kind of locked into whatever you chose mm. because it's going to be extremely hard to change later on what you're using for, let's say, routing. Uh, I actually had that experience where we had to like clone the library and like keep it up with like some other dependent changes. Um, because we were kind of locked in into that system. Um, whereas in Haskell, you can still get locked in or like a change might, like a switch might be hard, but at least you're like backed by the compiler and it's going to be a lot easier to change from one, one library to another. And we Very actually true. had that yeah. experience at Nordic as well. Like, like for example, we switched the MySQL library that we use, I think three times and it was pretty easy and pretty straightforward. Yeah. Um, So I think that's definitely a huge benefit. And I think that's one of the epiphanies that people get either with Hassel or with Elm for the first time is it's like, this is a type checked language where like, if I make a big change and it compiles again, it's normal that it just works. And it's like weird if it doesn't, like if your code compiles again, but doesn't just work, it's like, what? What is this? What's happening right now? I don't don't understand. (laughs) Or at least that happens like after a bit. Because yeah, it's just, it's very nice. <laughs> so something else that, that just occurred to me that is a weird similarity between Haskell and JavaScript, which is not a comparison I admit I've made a lot in my life, but here we are, <laughs> is that both languages are not really used the way that they were originally designed to be used, at least mm, in yeah. industry. Like JavaScript was designed to be for really, really small scripts running in the browser. Now it's used outside the browser all the time. And it's for gigantic, you know, million plus lines code bases. And also (laughs) more often than not these days with types, uh, none of which was like part of the original design. Because originally JavaScript was targeted at like non-programmers and like it was supposed to be like, you know, a really easy, tiny scripting language. But Haskell was originally designed by a committee to be a research language. And they specifically wanted to do research around laziness. That was like the original motivating thing. Simon Payton Jones gave this really cool talk about like the history of all that. I think it's called um, Escape from the Ivory Tower, if I remember right. And it was like, they were all really pumped up about exploring laziness. And first of all, they did explore it. And I haven't talked to any of them about this specifically, but I mean, I think if you see the research that comes out of the group of people who started to do that, none of it's about laziness anymore. So I think that kind of tells you about the conclusion of <laughs> what the laziness ended up to, you know, uh, living up to even the expectations of the people who were first exploring it, which brief tangent here. I'm, I'm curious what you think about this, but my opinion about laziness as a default of, of like pervasive laziness, like, like Haskell style where everything is lazily evaluated. I think it's like, it's just bad. It just, it was a mistake. It, it had a lot of, I, I completely understand why people would have explored it as a research angle and like why they would have been like, Hey, this is really promising. But now that it's been explored, I think we got the data. And I think it's just like, yep, this was a dead end. Like, it seemed cool, but the costs are just massively bigger than the benefits. And so we shouldn't do it anymore. And I think that perspective is backed up by the fact that since Haskell, there have been a number of languages that have come after Haskell that have taken a lot of different things from Haskell. Laziness is not one of them. I can't name any languages that came after Haskell that are like that have non-trivial usage, like Elm, PureScript, uh, Idris, uh, Rock. All of these languages take a lot of different things from Haskell. None of them take laziness. Everybody just leaves that one behind, even though that was the thing that it was built to explore. 
but that's somewhat of a controversial take. Like a lot of people will defend laziness and I don't agree with that, but I'm curious what you think. Yeah, we, we actually started out with, with lazy Haskell and we had it for probably like two years or so. Mm -hmm. And then we switched to strict Haskell uh, and we didn't like, like enabling the, the strictness the, in the, the compiler. The, yeah, like the, the, the strictness language extension and yeah, all of that. And but like the main reason for doing this was not that we like faced a lot of problems. Um, like we didn't have any space leaks or anything, or at least we didn't know yet. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sure. Maybe maybe by not by now we had we would have some. Um, um but it was mainly because we had like, I don't know if that's still too, true. Our company grew a lot over the last few years. Um, but when we enabled this, we had mostly people coming from the Elm community to our com company and then like starting to learn Haskell here. And right. coming with like an Elm background and Elm intuitions, it meant that they, they, they think strict and so it makes it easier to not have to switch that mindset to laziness. And we are actually also like, that wasn't the only change we made. We also like started down our own preludes that is like basically exactly the same as the core libraries of, of Elm. Right. <laughs> and uh, also all the libraries we use, except for a few exceptions, they all like follow similar design decisions uh, regarding their API. And, and that makes it actually for like pretty easy for someone coming from Elm to pick up how things work. And I just recently experienced this uh, with two newer coworkers who both had like Elm background and uh, like a deep actual like production uh, experience with Elm. And they didn't have much Haskell background besides like just dabbling around a little bit. Uh, on side projects and both yeah. of them like picked it up very quickly and are pretty proficient already now, I think. And I found it interesting that like uh, one coworker, like he immediately had like the intuitions. Oh, I think there should be a function for that in the, in our prelude because Elm has it as well. And obviously he was there. He didn't even <laughs> have to look up the docs. He was just like an intuition that he had. And uh, yeah, kind of. Like you just that. guess the name of the function, and it's right there. <laughs> yeah, it's just as expected. Yeah. Sorry, we started talking about lazy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I totally appreciate that. I mean, so and and like you, you mentioned, like we have a lot of people coming from an Elm background, and so they're not used to laziness; they're used to strictness as a default. But let's be real; that's every other language than Haskell. It's not <laughs> yeah, just Elm, sure. right? <laughs> <laughs> like you come from a Python, JavaScript, C sharp, F sharp. Every every language is strict except for Haskell and, and like Miranda before it. But so, what do you think about like just setting aside the like beginner learning curve thing? Like, let's say that you're totally proficient in Haskell with an and beginning learning curve is not a consideration. What do you think about laziness as a feature? Like if you're, let's say that you're starting a new project and it's going to be just you working on it and you've decided to use Haskell, would you go strict or lazy? I would go strict just to avoid like future issues, I think. Mm. Like space leaks? Yeah. I don't remember if, no, I think Shake is still lazy as far as I remember. I think the, the author of Shake, the build tool, mm -hmm. wrote a blog post about space leaks and how to detect them and so on. Uh, a while ago it was pretty interesting and, and they also wrote about like an actual space leak they had in in shake and i don't remember if they switched afterwards to using strict haskell i, I assume probably not though but yeah mm, yeah i don't think they did this is a neil mitchell's blog yeah like i think they probably just like used a lot of bangs in all the places and that was good enough <laughs> yeah sort of opt into strictness yeah yeah i definitely think it's easier the other way around if you don't have to think about it uh, it's just one one thing to worry less about okay so before going on the laziness tangent i was talking about uh all these researchers were doing research on laziness and but at some point they started branching off into other things and i think one of the things that really serves haskell well as a research language which i think it's excellent at i mean not being a researcher my impression is that it's it's really good for research is all the language extensions because that mm -hmm. means if you're like 
I want to write a paper about something and I only care about like this language feature, that language feature, or I want this language decision to have gone a different way so that it really simplifies my paper. And I can say, just use Haskell with this, this, and this enabled instead of having to, you know, write a ton about like, well, let's suppose hypothetically we have this feature in our language, you know, that's all seems like stuff that would be really convenient to researchers, but in industry, it's a lot of knobs to total. And like, I remember that was one of the first things that we had to decide was like, what's our exact set of language extensions we're going to enable. And that's actually something I get asked is like, people say, Hey, I heard you use Haskell at no red ink. What language extensions do you use with it? Yeah. <laughs> and and what, what prelude do you use? You know, what standard library, but you know, even, even beyond the whole like beginner thing and the whole, like, you know, JavaScript ask, like, you know, you go from one company to another and all the knobs are set in a different place. There's also just the fact that like, not all of these things are, necessarily as well supported in the ecosystem as others like if you use a library there's also a question of like what language extensions is the library using and like some of those are can be kind of like private and internal but some of them kind of leak out and like limit what library authors like can or should do in terms of like what parts of the language they're using if they want it to be compatible with the rest of the ecosystem yeah certainly and like we have a bunch of language extensions enabled but most of them are because we are using Servant, and that's one of the exceptions we make. Um, right. If you use Servant, you need a lot of language extensions to like have all the routing definitions on the type level. And it's definitely a compromise for us because Servant is the tool, the only tool, I don't know, maybe there are others, but the only tool we found that matches our needs for this particular problem and um, this is a web server uh, yeah a web server yeah and um yeah other other than that like we don't actually even though that we have a lot of of language extensions enabled that doesn't mean you come across those if you write like the business logic of your new feature and you will encounter almost nothing except like overloaded strings i guess um can't think of anything else honestly like that's the (laughs) The most important thing, but you also like, you don't encounter that because you don't like, you just use the text uh, type and, and that's it. Right. Um, so our, our code is definitely, we try to keep things simple and where we ended up um, now is like very close to Elm, I guess, like design decisions and so on. But we started out with like a complete different setup. And um, when we started, we used like Monet transformers and we l- used way more template Haskell. We used lenses and optics and, and there was a lot of machinery to do effects. And it was, even though that like, it gave us the features we wanted for, in, in, for let's, let's use the, the example of, of running effects. Uh, one particular need we had is like, we want to have a different behavior for an effect if you run it in tests. Uh, so let's say you have like an effect that reads something from the database. We don't want to have a database running for unit tests. So like you can mock out what that behavior does basically. Uh, so we used like, well, what is I think called the has X pattern. So you can like have type constraints and that needs to have all that machinery. We used lenses and optics and it was really hard for new people to understand how to introduce new um, effects because that was something that was not just like very generic effect that you defined, but for each new thing, we introduced this, this like pattern and it was a lot of boilerplate code, even though that like you are think you think using template Haskell avoids boilerplate, you still had to like add it everywhere. And then if you got like if you forgot something that the compiler messages were just awful. Um so we switched away from that particular pattern by just like being more explicit and passing in handlers. Uh, so we are using the handle handle or handler pattern right now which is way more explicit and gives us the exact same benefits like we can have real effects and mock effect for tests and has the nice benefit of being more explicit yeah i'm glad you brought up like lenses and optics because that's in the category of things that i often think of as something that 
people like aspire to in the sense that it's like, oh, I don't know about this. Let me learn about it. Oh, I learned about it. Now let me use it. And from my perspective, there's an important extra step after that, which is like, let me evaluate it and like try to take a step back and say like, now that I understand this thing and I've used it, is this better or worse than not using it? And that's a really important step. And I'm not trying to say that like, you know, everybody who likes lenses and optics is like not doing that evaluation. But I am saying that I came up with a different answer than they did if they like. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I mean, I definitely, I looked at like a a popular lens library and it had like a readme that was demonstrating like, oh, here's the motivating use case that this solves. Like, check it out. You can do these things. And okay, as, as an aside, like I understand more if someone's saying like Haskell's records as a language feature are not great like in elm they're really nice but in haskell they just they have a lot of ergonomics issues or at least they they have i I, as i understand it there's like the the next release is or or maybe the current release now um makes them a lot nicer but if you're using lenses as just a like i don't like this but i just need to improve the records a little bit like okay that's that's a different thing but then there's the like I'm going to use lenses to make triply nested getter. And that's going to be unlike when I'm going to compose that with this other thing. And like, this is going to be really nice, readable, maintainable code. Like, I don't agree. Like, just write it out the the normal way as if you didn't have like lens, like just doing all of this, like sort of extraneous function composition gymnastics to try and like access some data. It's just not worth it. I don't think, I mean, it's like, it makes the code run slower and it makes it harder to read. It's just not, I don't think it's an improvement. And like, I was looking at this lens libraries readme and it was like, here's a motivating example. Let's suppose we have this thing and that thing. And we want to like access this piece of data within that thing and check it out with a lens. We can do it like this. And I was like, okay. And I just took that code example and I was like, let me rewrite it without the lens. And I was like, yep, I like this much better. <laughs> this is much yeah. easier to understand and it's going to run faster. Like, so even in like the the motivating example of a lens library, I was still like, I'm not seeing it. This seems like a step backwards. But I, you know, some people disagree with me, obviously about that. But I'm, I'm curious what you think. Yeah, I definitely was at this place as well at some point. When I learned Haskell, I was like, oh, I want to learn like everything that the language has to offer. Sure. But that was well after I felt like already comfortable contributing to our Haskell projects. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's valuable to learn about things. It's anything. Like, I think it's good to learn something. Yeah. <laughs> I think totally. we can yeah. all agree. <laughs> Even if you, but it doesn't mean you need to use it afterwards. Right. And I think learning about lenses teaches you a lot about how types work. And like it teaches you a lot of of lessons that apply to other things as well. Like something I find super useful is reading types and like understanding what a function does just by reading the type. Something that uh, usually a beginner doesn't have the intuition to just looking at the type signature and, and is like, oh yeah, I know what's going on in here more or less. And learning that is definitely very useful. You know what this reminds me of is, uh, have you ever heard of the Ikea effect? No. It's it's this term for, so Ikea furniture comes, you know, disassembled and then you put it together and, you know, that takes a little bit of time, but of course it's like, you know, costs less and, and all that. The Ikea effect refers to after you've spent all that time putting the furniture together, you feel more attached to it. Like you like it more because you made this big personal investment as opposed to like something that you just bought and like carried home and then didn't have to spend all that time assembling. I think there's some aspect of the Ikea effect when it comes to learning something difficult, where it's like, if you spent all this time learning it, and it was hard and challenging. And then afterwards, you feel a sense of accomplishment and satisfaction. That also, I think, you know, at least it's happened to me that I feel more attached to that thing. And I actually have to like go further out of my way to remind myself to be like, okay, wait, but it's entirely possible that I spent all this time learning this thing. And now I actually shouldn't use it. Let me like, you know, be honest with myself and try to evaluate this as if I hadn't just spent all that time learning it. Yeah. <laughs> but, but like, it's harder, right? Like you get really invested in, in something and <laughs> it's hard to be dispassionate. So this is going to be a super far reaching tension because it doesn't have to do with programming. That's cool. But I'm doing a thing called movement practice, right? which it's going to need another podcast to explain because I don't even <laughs> know myself exactly what it is. But one thing that it taught me is like, or one idea 
as far as I understand, is that you learn something and at some point, if you reach a certain level in that one skill, let's say, you move on and let go and try to transfer like the lessons you learned to something new instead of like keeping the attachment to the old thing. And there's like this talk about content and the container. So you, so you use like a, con- uh, a container, like let, let's say the handstand. I'm learning the handstand at the moment. So mm-hmm. use the con- container of a handstand to learn about balance, to learn about actually learning a skill because learning the handstand or like harder progressions is like very frustrating and like also challenging. So you mm. learn how to learn and then you, once you reach a certain level, you move on and let go and you try not to become the handstand person or whatever. <laughs> so you let go of that and kind of move on. And, and I think it applies to anything you learn is like, let's learn about, let's say lenses and take what you learned using the container of lenses and move on and, and keep the, the fundamentals, like the principles and yeah, I think that's like the, the valuable stuff, not like knowing how lenses work. Oh, right. Or, or not necessarily like literally using it in your code base. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like, yeah. and actually like handstands an interesting analogy because you could think about it as like, okay, so let's say you, you know, master the handstand or like, let's pick yeah. something even more obscure. Like, I don't know, weren't you doing like one finger pushups recently or something like that? No, no, no but like, I have a good analogy. Like I just learned how to walk on the hands. It's like, great to learn that but like okay just just on your hands no no feet involved yeah it's not better than walking on the feet like exactly it, right. <laughs> it, it doesn't look as nice but it's still more efficient i think right but i'm assuming that like you know in the process of learning that you ended up like improving other things that are not it's, it's not like you ended up with a better way of walking it's that learning how to walk on your hands right give you other improvements which do translate to like other other things that you do yeah totally. <laughs> But next time I see you in person, I expect that you'll just be walking on your hands like, hey, guys, what's going on? Shake your hand hand with my feet. Yeah. (laughs) That's a tricky thing, though. I mean, it's it's tricky to, like, spend so much time and get so invested in something and then, like, consciously choose not to use it. But I think, you know, going back to, like, Haskell's origins as a research language, I don't think that's a researcher's job is to say, like, you know, this is – this is what you should use in your like industrial thing. I think it's the researcher's job to try things and like experiment and try to push boundaries and try to like explore new things that might or might not be practically applicable. And then it's like the job of industry to like learn from that, hopefully, and and like try to figure out what makes sense in the context of like, you know, you're trying to build an application. Yeah. And that's definitely something that we should not just research, but all of us, we should like experiment with something that, is outside of our comfort zone or that we think is maybe bad or like we have a bias towards sometimes good to like go out and just try and uh, maybe learn something then great otherwise well at least now you know that that thing was you were right about it for for you Hello, Wayne has some cool blog posts about stuff like this, not just like different programming languages, but also like, you know, stuff like formal methods and like, you know, truth tables and like all these different techniques and stuff that may not be something that, you know, you immediately turn around and like, this is just how I'm doing everything from now on. But, you know, things that can stretch your mind and like expand your toolbox. I've definitely found that the applicability of a lot of techniques that I use or have learned, it's not that they're used commonly. But sometimes I'll find myself in a situation where like just the fact that I knew this one obscure thing saved me an unbelievable amount of time or or just like really prevented me from going off a cliff somewhere where I was like, oh, if I if I didn't randomly know about this one thing that I learned about and thought was totally impractical and I was never going to use, I would have just completely done the wrong thing here. The problem is. Also, it happens to me a lot that I learn something and I never use it. <laughs> I like it never actually comes up. So, you know, it's it's hard to kind of predict, but like I, I definitely have found that overall it's been valuable to learn things that may not necessarily have obvious like concrete practical applications. Yeah. One thing that comes to mind, and I think maybe this is both because I've been using the word apply and also because this is a conversation we were having in <laughs> Rock recently is uh, applicatives. So this is like a, I'm pretty sure that um, applicatives came out of like research on Haskell. Could be wrong. I think it was like Connor McBride and 
somebody else whose name I'm forgetting, uh, like wrote the original paper on that and it was coming out of Haskell. But like, mm-hmm. this is basically a way like the traditional way that you compose together like chained effects or like historically, I guess. Well, okay. So as I understand it, the history of this is like, originally Haskell was like, okay, we want to explore laziness in order to have a lazy language where everything is lazily evaluated. We can't have side effects because that just doesn't work with laziness. It just doesn't, you can't have both. You can't have laziness and, and side effects. Uh, Simon Peyton Jones referred to this as like wearing the hair shirt, which was actually not a phrase I was familiar with, but apparently it's like, I don't know, doing something uncomfortable or awkward or weird. But basically he was like, laziness was kind of this forcing function where like we, we really could not allow any side effects or else the laziness just wouldn't work. And that ended up in his perspective, like being the, the cool thing that came out of uh, all this research into laziness was like, uh, he doesn't like come out and say it this way, but kind of the implication is, is he's like, laziness was a dead end, but it led us to understand that pure functions are awesome. And so it was totally worth it. But he did say like, I predict the next, like the next Haskell won't be lazy or something like that. Sure. Anyway. So he was talking about how like, and, I, and maybe this is in a different talk, but the history of like how Haskell style, like, pure functional IO and like an actual effects, not side effects, but like managed effects ended up happening was originally it was like, they didn't have an idea for like how to do this. It was just like, well, this is going to be really painful. And I think the original design was like, you would write a program and at the outside of the program, it would take in some gigantic variable called like world. And then it would return a new world and you would run that. And then it would give you back a new world. And then you'd run another program, which got the world from the previous program and would like run all of that and then produce a new world. And like in between there was some like, you know, doing some actual effects, which was, I mean, ludicrously <laughs> like unergonomic, obviously. And then at some point, and, and this is where I forget if I mentioned this on a different podcast, but I was talking to somebody who made the point that if you just give somebody like this problem and you're like, you have the restriction, you can only use pure functions and you're trying to make a program that can like actually run effects and like chain them together and like do useful stuff. How do you solve that problem? I bet if you give different groups of people long enough, they will come up with a solution to that, which is like, you know, basically chained callbacks kind of, you know, that, that like return wrappers around, you know, like a type that represents like what you want to do next. And then you have the, the actual like runtime evaluate them and, and run the effects as it happens the first person to discover this in Haskell was Philip Wadler. And the way that he came up with the idea was because he was familiar with the mathematical concept of monads and this is a monad. And so that was how he framed all of that in Haskell. But there's probably an alternate universe where the first person to come up with that is not somebody who was, had a mathematics background. They just were like, Oh, you know, if I put these types together, like it solves the problem. That's just like, Hey, check it out. You know, here's our solution. And they wouldn't have called it monads and Haskell would not have monad in the standard library. Like that's another possible parallel universe. And then you wouldn't have a million monad tutorials, none of which is successful. But we don't live in that world. We live in the world where Philip Wilder discovered it first. And uh, and that was, you know, how he decided to frame it. And so that's like where a lot of that, there's like this whole lineage of things that comes out of that. And I actually personally had a, a similar experience with applicatives. I had no idea what applicatives were. I'd never heard of that term at this point. I had Previously attempted to learn Haskell by reading through Learn You a Haskell for great good. Then I made it a couple chapters in and then I was like, this is really cool and mind blowing. And then I never, <laughs> never even got halfway through it. That's what I did. Yeah, I think a lot of people did that. I've, I've heard that story many times. I got an Elm and I was trying to solve this problem with uh, JSON decoding, where I wanted to try and make it so that I could decode json with like an arbitrary number of fields in the object and not have to use like you know map three or map four just be like i just want something that you know kind of looks like a, a schema and i remember i was at no ratings office and i was like drawing this out on the whiteboard and trying to figure out how to do this and i was trying to figure out how to do it without custom infix operators also because i think that was something that was like in the language but was like on its way out at the time and i ended up with a design that solved the problem it was like i you know i, I didn't know any of the terminology behind what i was doing i was just like well these are the types that the compiler accepts and it does the thing that I want. So I guess this is the solution. And I called it decode pipeline because it used the pipeline operator. And I much later on learned that what I had done was use applicatives. <laughs> I had no idea at the time, but like that was that was like the technique. And I think that same thing could have very well happened with monads. Like monads and applicatives have like a 
a relationship. And actually, like arguably, I think you could make the case that applicatives are a more important discovery in the sense that they revealed ways to like do useful things with like concurrency. And I don't know that mm-hmm. I think when I look at the types of applicatives, I'm like, this is a lot less obvious to me than the type of a monad. Like the monad type at least is like, oh, okay. It's like, well, do the thing. It's it's like a okay, so there's a whole tangent about teaching, but like to me, the way to teach monads is step one, teach someone how to use Elm. And step two, have them write a bunch of Elm programs. And step three, we're probably like two or three years in now. Not not that far, but like... Tell them that they've been using it. Right. They are very familiar with a bunch of these like pure functional types. You can be like, hey, by the way, you know how like maybe's got an and then? And you know how results got an and then? And you know how task has an and then? Okay, let's look at these types side by side. You're already familiar with like how they work. And like, oh, look at the shape they have in common. Check it out. That's a monad. Ta-da! Like, and they also have to have like a, you know, succeed or, or whatever, <laughs> but like, that's it. That's like the way to teach it. And I've never seen, and like, that's why that's <laughs> at this point, I mean, I know people won't stop trying, but like, it is like very deep into meme territory now of like writing the monad tutorial without the context of like, you've done a bunch of pure functional programming where it's like, oh, don't worry this time, this time I'm going to teach you how to, how to learn monads. <laughs> like, from scratch, like okay, good luck. You're gonna, you're only the thousandth person to try it this way, you know. And it's like at some point, I don't know. Like, there's a very strong track record of teaching it the other way, which is like first you learn how to practically apply all the things, and then you just point out the pattern after the fact. Like, I don't know. I, I've seen that work lots of times. <laughs> I, I have literally never seen like any monad tutorial have a higher success rate than just like some percentage of people seem to just get it, but it's a pretty low percentage. Yeah. We, I actually have been thinking a lot about this as well because I, I've been, I started a, a group to, or like a kind of a learning group where I, I teach uh, a few coworkers Haskell the way I think I learned it through my coworkers, like former coworkers, and as an experiment. And hopefully, I'm going to expand this so, such that it's going to be accessible to everyone. Um, but regardless, so what I was doing was teaching Haskell for people who actually already know, or my assumption was like, oh, you have like some knowledge of FP. But I've been talking to another coworker and we are going to build something where like often what people who are completely unfamiliar with FP struggle with when they learn Elm is like they see something in one way and then another way and they don't know like they don't know what to choose and they don't know like that it's actually the same. Like, like let's say we case on a maybe or we do it with default and something that we both found is very important when you start out learning Elm is that you like try all the different ways of doing something. And there aren't that many and like experiencing, let's say doing an end then with a maybe, but also with a, results and, and maybe also with your own type and we we are going to try to to build a small like tutorial where you can like experience doing things in different ways and then actually seeing oh this is actually the same i saw with maybe and i can do the same here for my own type and i think that's building that intuition that later you can reveal to them oh and by the way you learned about monads and functors and, and all of <laughs> right. that yeah, and we were talking about like doing this in Haskell or Elm, like it doesn't really matter. Um, sure. But we found that using Elm is probably going to be better because the type the error messages are way better, or the compiler messages. Sure. And also makes me think about something. I'm curious about your opinion. Um, like running this little course with about ten people or so, I think I made a few observations that like. I think are the two biggest things that people get stuck on is like one people tend to not read the whole error message, mm. um, which like the, the error messages for for Haskell are usually bigger than what you see for like Elms are also quite big, but they usually don't have much text or like it's very obvious uh, with the text and. So they don't read the whole message and then make assumptions about what the error message actually means and make changes and get more complex error messages and so on. And the other thing I think 
what gets people stuck is doing too many things at once. Um, so they want to like introduce mm -hmm. a refactor and they change every, every piece of it and then compile and everything blows up and like the type mismatches are all over the place and you don't really know where, where to start. And the same applies, like they made a change, get an error message, and then they try to fix it, like the whole thing, instead of just making a small adjustment to verify your assumptions and then see the new error message. And I wonder, you have been teaching Elm a lot as well, if that is something you saw as well in Elm, when teaching Elm. Like I don't have much experience teaching Elm, but I wonder if that's a Haskell specific thing or a learning specific thing. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I honestly, I have not seen that when teaching Elm. Um, I haven't really seen the problem of like people not reading the error messages. And maybe it's just because like they're they're formatted very nicely and like they don't mm -hmm. contain a lot of extraneous information, generally speaking. And if they do contain information that's extraneous, it's usually at the very end and it's prefaced with like hint or tip or something like that. And it's like, mm -hmm. you know, this might or might not apply here, but like, you know, it's, it's something to try. And yeah, I, I've almost seen the opposite where like, so I've done a lot of like in-person workshops. This is like, especially, you know, pre-pandemic, obviously. But like, there was a lot of times where I would have things like a student would raise their hand and they would come show me an error that they were getting. And it's because they actually like moved ahead and they'd be like, is this telling me what I think it is? And I'd be like, yeah, actually, like, you're right. <laughs> That's, you know, like, good job. But I haven't seen the opposite of that very much where like someone shows me an error and like, I'm stuck on this. I don't get it. Actually, I, I will say the most common case for that would happen is actually syntax errors, not type errors, like mm, yeah. um, where the really common thing that I would see, and this would be true of Haskell and Elm because they both have this where like the parentheses go in different places. Like if you're calling a nested function, you put the parentheses outside the function call instead of like inside touching the name of the function, like you do in like C or JavaScript or Python people would put the parentheses in the wrong place when they're beginners and the error message that they would get wouldn't tell them, Hey, you put the parentheses in the wrong way. It would be like, you know, Oh, I don't understand this. Or, or maybe it would be, they made a syntax mistake, but it came out as a type error because they were like trying to call the function with too many arguments or something like that, or, or call yeah. something that wasn't a function as if it was a function. Have you observed that like people changing too much at the same time, like doing too many changes at once, basically? Not in beginner workshops, but to be fair, I mean, I always kind of like the way that I would structure the exercises in those is that I would generally give people like a, an existing file to edit and like, um, and I would have some to do comments in there that like to do like change this to, to do this or like mm -hmm. to do implement this part. And so they would be pretty isolated, like they wouldn't really be coming across at least in, in a beginner workshop like the type of situation where you'd be making a bunch of changes at once. It was like, I'd intentionally set it up so that they would be pretty isolated. So I guess I, I, I didn't really get any data on like, I don't know what, when people might run into that. Okay. Yeah. I think that might also be because, so I've been trying actually also another like movement related thing I learned is from my teacher. So I have like a personal teacher and he gives me every six weeks, I get like the new program. And when we started out, I got like very detailed instructions plus a video and like it was a lot of information. And then second phase, I got like only a video. And then sometimes I got like audio with video and then not. And I was like, just like, is he just a pure, poor um, teacher and like <laughs> not very consistent? But later on, I learned it's very intentional. Like, Hmm. he doesn't want to spoon feed you all the information at once he wants like you to discover and actually making some mistakes while you, you learn something and um i don't know if i i'm succeeding in this but i'm trying to do the same with learning like teaching people haskell is like i'm not going to tell you all the things you need to change i'm going to say right tell you the thing we want to build and then you make your mistakes by yourself and obviously if someone needs more help i'm going in and help them um, and maybe that leads leads to people like doing way too many things at once and then like everything crashes and it's very frustrating. Well, I think that progression is is a good one. Like starting off with just like a lot of hand holding and then progressively less and less. Mm -hmm. This is something I tried to do in like my full day uh, Elm workshop and also my front end master's course. I do this too, where initially it's like 
I'm giving you this like code file and I'm like, okay, make these changes just in these places. And then like later on, like by the end of the course, it's like the instructions are just like, there's a bug. Here's what the symptoms are. Fix it. And like, that's right. it. <laughs> right. And it's like, and also I hit you with this on like a, a code base. That's like, like pretty substantial. It's like a couple thousand lines of code and you haven't seen any of it, but I'm just like, here's the bug, you know, figure out how to fix it. But the point is that by that point, you've learned enough techniques and stuff that like you actually know how to do that. And like, it's a stretch, but it's not going to be this like monumental challenge. It's going to be just like a little bit harder than what you just did in the previous one, which is a little bit harder than the one before that. And I think this gets back to something that you mentioned earlier on, like learning how to learn. This can be super valuable because like if you're just watching somebody else do like a particular movement pattern that Mm -hmm. you've never seen before, you're not going to be able to ask them like, hey, can you give me a tutorial on how to do what you just did. Like they're probably just going to, they just posted it on YouTube or something. You're just watching it. And so like building up the skill of being able to say, can I just watch someone do this and figure out how to do it on my own? Like that's also a thing to learn. And I think it's the same thing in programming where like there's a difference between reading a book or watching a a video or, or doing a workshop on how to learn a particular programming technique versus just like you just see someone's code. And they're using this thing and you're like, I don't know what this technique is, but let me see if I can deconstruct it and figure it out and like yeah. see if I can figure out a way to like apply it in my own code. And that actually brings us back to how I actually learned Haskell is by working with with uh, mainly two of former coworkers, um, Harley Jones and, and Jasper Wildenberg. And both of them were way more experienced than I was when I started to learn Haskell. And they, like, just working with them, seeing how they do stuff, and but then doing it myself, that's, I think, how I actually learned. And not, like, reading a book or, or something. I think that that's useful later on, like, going in depth in something you already kind of understand, I think is better than the other way around. I only know of one Haskell book that even like purports to be teaching in this way, which is Effective Haskell by Rebecca Skinner, which is uh, still like a work in progress book. But like, I mean, that's the only book I know of that's like, this is all about like the this, the tagline of this book is solving real world problems with strongly typed functional programming. It's like all about like building stuff and not about like a pet peeve of mine is the like the stereotypical Haskell book that chapter one is like lambda calculus and chapter seven is hello world you know like it's it's uh <laughs> it's too common i think uh like there's there's so many different ways to learn a programming language and like the most common way that like for people who want to like use it in industry and like or like just build applications with it is like yeah start with how to build an application and then like later on get into the theoretical stuff not the other way around but cool anything else we should make sure to talk about no, I think that was good. Nice. Hopefully. <laughs> All right. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks so much. Uh, I appreciate you coming on the show. And yeah, uh, we'll have to do another one. Thank you for having me.